Hi guys and welcome to another episode of Cults and Crime. I'm Jamie. And I'm Nicole. So this week we're going to be continuing our series on the Tracy Triangle. And we're going to be finishing the story of Sandra Cantu. Jamie. Well, so for everyone that doesn't know this, we recorded this probably like three weeks ago. But due to everything that's going on in life and life being life, we haven't been recording and I have been waiting and I've tried so hard not to just research it myself because I wanted to hear you say it. Good, because I t- it took a long time for me to finish this. You know those cases that are just difficult to write? This is one of them. Like I was writing and I had to take breaks because I was just like, this is just so sad and like upsetting. And I don't want, like, I don't want to write this because I know what's going to happen. And I don't want it to, like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to, I don't want to do it. So I was like focusing on school stuff instead. And then I'd come back to it and write like a few pages and just be like, oh, this is so painful. And then, you know, go back, do some schoolwork and then come back to it. And it's just, this is such a heart wrenching story. And it took me so long to write. But I did, I finished it, and now I'm going to let you guys know the rest of the story for Sandra Cantu. All right, let's go. So last week, as our part of the Tracy Triangle miniseries, we started getting to the case of Sandra Cantu, an eight-year-old girl that was missing from Tracy, California. That Last week, the police had just found her body, but was still had a wide array of suspects. This week's I'm, This week, I'm going to tell you how the police whittled down the suspect pool to find the killer and put them behind bars. Sandra's body was found on April 6, just over a week after she was kidnapped. This was the worst news the family could have gotten. Up until then, they believed Sandra was still alive. So you can imagine just the heart-wrenching pain the family was going through. Oh yeah, totally. That night, there was another candlelit vigil where over 100 community members gathered to mourn her. The autopsy would be completed by 9 a.m. the next morning, at the time, they did not release any details of this because she was a minor, but during the court case and even afterward doing them because of Freedom of Information Act stuff, they, the autopsy was eventually released. I'm going to go over the findings as quickly as possible because they are just like so painful and gruesome and awful. So if, it's, just, it's just something that you, you feel like you don't want to hear it. Skip forward a few minutes. And because I I can guarantee you this is something that you do not want to hear. Okay, so the first thing the findings found was a drug called alfozalem, a second generation benzodiazepine in her system. This was mainly used to treat anxiety and panic disorders. Sandra was not prescribed this drug and was not taking it. So this was likely given to her by her killer. Sandra had a cut on her lower lip and abrasion on her left elbow. The official cause of death was homicidal asphyxiation. She had marks around her neck and a torn piece of cloth that was tied around her head was found as well. This is like the really difficult part. So this she had... Really, this is the really difficult part? She had injuries to her um, external genitals consisting with sexual abuse of a foreign object. And you can imagine this was really, really difficult for her family and the officers involved, but they did not stop the investigation. They were still going to go down their list of suspects to try and try to pinpoint alibis, get polygraphs, you know, do something because 
whoever could do this to an eight-year-old girl is clearly a monster. So as they're trying to find the suspects to get polygraphs on all of them, they can't get a hold of one person. And it turns out it's because she was in the hospital. Was it the neighbor or the best friend? Well, the same day Sandra's body was found, Melissa Huckabee had three ambulances called to take her to the hospital for internal bleeding. She had swallowed razor blades. Really? So... I could tell from how you said, really, that you also think this is incredibly suspicious. And the police did, too. So I think at this point, they kind of start putting down everyone else because everyone else has alibis or reasons they couldn't have done it at the time. You know, just everyone had something else to prove they didn't do it. You know, there was no DNA evidence. There was no fingerprints. There's no anything. There was nothing? For anyone else but... Melissa, she was really starting to act suspicious and she and the police had already found out that she was the one who wrote the note. So I think at this point, they really start to narrow in on her. You know, obviously they're keeping their options open and they're still talking to other people. But after the suicide attempt, they start treating her more, you know, at first they were treating her as someone who just wanted attention. And then they started treating her as someone who maybe did the murder. So Melissa survives her apparent suicide attempt, and the police interview her from her hospital bed. During the interview, Melissa claimed she swallowed the blades on accident while sleepwalking. When shown pictures of the suitcase, she told investigators that, kind of looks like mine, man, it kind of looks like I had something to do with it, but still claimed her innocence. She also said, why would someone want to take her? Why do people hurt other people? Because they are sick. In their heads, disgusting. While in the hospital, she was watched very, very carefully and texted her friends and family about the case. She texted her grandmother, they are having an 815 news briefing on the suitcase. That was fast. I hope they didn't find anything. And I hope she wasn't sexually assaulted. And mind you, at this time, like I said, they did not release the, any reports on the autopsy. So there was no way she should, should have or could have known that sexual assault was even on the table. So all this stuff is really piling up around Melissa, and it looks really suspicious, but none of it's concrete, and detectives know if they want to be able to build a good case, they have to have more. So they start to look into her past. So she had a few petty thefts, but she was also a suspect in not one, but two arson fires. Charges were never filed on these, so that was kind of a dead end as well. In January, she had been accused of kidnapping and drugging another little girl. The girl had been found after missing with Huckabee, and her parents had to take her to the hospital because she kept passing in and out of consciousness. The hospital did find drugs in her system, and guess what they found? A benzozyatopine. The really? same type of drug that was given to Sandra. But the girl's mom was a drug user, and there was no concrete proof to show Melissa had any had given her these drugs. So, once again, no charges were present. This seems like damning evidence. But once again, it's all circumstantial. On March 2nd, Melissa texted her on-and-off-again boyfriend that she was pregnant, and he said he wanted to marry her. When they met at the church, she gave him a cup of something to try, and the next thing he knew, he woke up in jail. The police found him passed out in a McDonald's drive-thru. 
So, okay, guys, I'm like going to tell you this right off the bat. Most mentally ill people are not dangerous. In fact, they are actually more likely to be the victim of violent crime than the perpetrator. So when I tell you this stuff about anything about Melissa with mental health, this is specifically related to her, not anyone you could possibly know in the general public that has mental illnesses. So with that being said, Melissa was diagnosed bipolar schizophrenic and was depressed with high levels of anxiety. Because of this, she was taking a few different drugs to help with this, including alprozalem, a benzodiazepine, the same drug that was given to Sandra, and the same type of drug that little girl had tested positive for. So, to me, this is like the first real concrete evidence, because it really narrows it down. There's only so many people that are on this drug in this area, and she's one of them. So, they start to build a case against Melissa. They know that her suitcase... She, they know her suitcase was used in the disposal of Sandra's body. It was Melissa who found and wrote the note that led officers to the disposal site. Melissa's daughter is Sandra's best friend, so she had access to her and had gone to play at her friend's house the day she was killed. The only problem, Sandra had an alibi. She was at the church around the time Sandra went missing, and a phone call even placed her there. So... That's not going to stop detectives because they are just awesome people that really want to find justice for Sandra. And they go to the church. You know, maybe someone saw her there, could give them an exact time that she entered and left the church. Um, they had, you know, they had found cloth on Sandra, so maybe they could match that. So at the church, they find binding cord that had been cut and retied, and it matched the cord that was used to tie the suitcase shut. And they found this in the same room Melissa used for her sundry school classes. They also found a rolling pin that has been bent. It looked like it had blood on one end and it matched a description given by the coroner for the foreign object that had been inserted into Sandra. Okay. Um, they had it sent it away for testing and they confirmed that it was blood, but they, at this point, didn't know whose blood it was, and they didn't have the fingerprints back yet, so they're still waiting on that. But it did come back positive, and it had Melissa's fingerprints on it. That was a solid piece of evidence, because Sandra had never been in that church, so how would her blood be there? So another really strong piece of evidence that came to them in the form of a witness that placed Melissa at the pond where Sandra's body was found. He and his wife were on their way back from dinner when they stopped a suspicious car parked by the pond. They stopped and saw a woman walking up from the pond. They gave the description and it matched Melissa to a T. So this was another great piece of evidence because it's substantial. She was, they, someone saw her at the disposal site for the body. And even before they got the reports back from the lab, they made an arrest. So they bring her into the station under the guise they want to get a formal statement, you know, because they know that she's someone who is willing to commit suicide and they don't want that. They want her to go to jail instead. So they tell her that they're just looking for a formal statement, but what they're really looking for here is a confession. So they sit her down and they lay out all the evidence for her, especially the note and the eyewitness reports. So you guys can watch the interview, and I think the police did an amazing job. It's pretty long, 
but it's very much worth it, I think. Especially if this is the kind of thing that you guys enjoy. Obviously, you do. This is a true crime podcast. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. Yeah, definitely. So they start out really slow, and they lay their evidence out really calmly. And Melissa confesses. She breaks down in tears. She she claims that Sandra's dress was an accident, and that she and Sandra had been playing hide-and-go-seek, and Sandra had hidden in her suitcase, and Melissa forgot about her, and then by the time she would remember it, Sandra just looked dead. She said that Sandra's body looked pale, and she tried CPR, but nothing worked, so she panicked and hid the body in the pond where it was found. At the time, she denied sexually assaulting Sandra and said that it was not, and then she, and she said it was an accident. But once the tests came back from the items collected at the church, it was clear that Melissa was not telling the truth. The cords that, the cords that matched the binding of the suitcase matched the blinds, and the rolling pin had Sandra's DNA on it. So the confession was enough to arrest Melissa Huckabee for the murder of Sandra, but the police wanted justice. So they needed to prove that Sandra's murder was no accident, but a premeditated murder. And the fact that she had clearly lied to the police multiple times and orchestrated a note to be found by the police to point, like, that points away from an accidental death for sure. she's at least tampering with evidence. At the very least. Yeah, but... The police needed more. They're like, okay, we have all this stuff. We know for sure that she committed the murder and we know she tried to cover it up, but we have to try to prove that this was premeditated and we need to prove that it was no accident. Because they need to make sure that that Melissa Huckabee is going to go into jail for as long as possible for being the horrific human being that she is. So they do a search of Melissa's computer and it showed search results that would point even further away from an accident. They found an article that laid out the blueprints for the disposal of Sandra's body. In the article, the child was killed by her grandfather, put in a suitcase, and disposed of in water, just like Sandra. And, you know, and if you look at the previous like weird history of Melissa, she was accused of drugging another little girl and her own fiancé. And they found the same drugs in Sandra's autopsy reports. So wait, why wait, would you... wait, 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 wait. So the big question here is, why would you give a child drugs for a game of hide-and-seek? On April 12th, Melissa Huckabee's family gathered information... Gathered information about the church. Okay, nope. I wrote that weird. On April 12th, Melissa Huckabee's family gathered around the church for Easter Sunday. They made a public statement of confusion. They said Melissa was a wonderful mother to her daughter. And this really didn't go well with the community because the police and media members believe that the church is where Melissa killed Sandra. So seeing a family basically say my daughter's innocent when so much evidence pointed away from that in front of what could very much be the murder site is just horrific. It's just it's just a horror show. So, according to the police, Melissa used Sandra's helpful spirit to lure her to the church. Once there, she was drugged. Sandra, once there, she drugged and killed Sandra. After she was dead, she covered her own tracks with a phone call to the, mo- to the mobile home manager to report her suitcase missing. And then she disposed of the body in the pond. 
Once in court and under the weight of all that evidence, she did end up taking a plea deal. And during the trial, she apologized to the family, but did not give a reason for the murder. She told the family that she wished she could bring Sandra back and the police were wrong. She had not, Sandra had not suffered and she was not sexually assaulted. We know this is just unfortunately not the truth. Sandra was strangled with a cloth-like noose, and because of the DNA evidence collected, we know she was sexually assaulted. Melissa took a plea deal for murder and kidnapping. In exchange, the police dropped the sexual abuse and death penalty. She never did give an explanation of why she did what she did. Many people speculate that it was for attention, or that she was jealous of little Cantu, but we're never going to know. That's... That's horrible. She, even in, you know, she can't say why she did it. It's just, you know, why, why couldn't she have said something? Well, like, what, a is, what reason could you have? What reason would make sense? I don't what, know. Re, what, what possible reason could it be to, that would make sense for doing this to a, an eight-year-old child? No, it doesn't make any sense at all. It's just, you know, and something that I didn't even, I didn't even get to mention, like in the case. So the suitcase, like was, it was a large size suitcase, but it was not, it wasn't really big enough for an eight year old to sit in it comfortably. She had to shove her body in there to make it fit. Oh my God. I just like, what? Yeah, I guess it's like, what would make somebody do that? And that's, you know, the, the whole thing when it comes to cases like these, like, why would you do that? She, this woman probably was a pedophile, or this woman was a pedophile, obviously. Which I'm so. Um, the speculation is that in order to try to make it look like it was someone else to cover her tracks, she sexually assaulted Sandra with a rolling pin, thinking they would think it was um, a male sexual organ. Oh my god. That's so sick. So, instead of thinking that she's a pedophile, most people believe that she actually did it in order to try to cover her tracks. How could that you do just, that to somebody you know? How could you do that to a little girl? She was she was eight. Like if you look at pictures of her, she was so small. Like she was so tiny, and she was like all the pictures. She's like smiling, and she looks so happy. And, like, her family loved her. And everyone in the community loved this little girl. She was just, like, a great person. And she, like, could have been a great human being and gone, like, you know, gone to college or done, like, literally anything with her life. Like, she could have been the next person to cure cancer. She could have been a pilot. She could have literally, like, worked at a freaking gas station for all I care. But she had, like, a, like, she could have done something with her life. She could, like, she could have had kids herself one day. And it's, like, and all that is taken away because of... Nothing. Because as far as we know, there's no reason why Melissa did this. And there's no reason to explain, to make it feel better, to give us some sort of closure. There's just nothing. A lot of people believe that Melissa did it for attention. And they believe this because, you know, every step of this investigation, she inserted herself into it. You know, it was her soup case and she reported it missing. It was her who wrote the note. It was her who was very, very helpful with police and started showing her all the different creepy guys that lived in the trailer park. It was her who kept calling Sandra's mother. Even the day, so the day before, she, the day she gets arrested, the police were watching her 
And they were planning on arresting her later on. But then she called Sandra Cantu's mother and asked if Sandra's sister could come over to her house to play. So the police, like knowing what they knew, decided to arrest her early because they were afraid that she was going to try to kill Sandra's sister. Yeah, that's a real fear. This one's psychotic. Yeah, it just, I don't know. This is, like I said, this is one of the stories that was really hard for me to write. Because I really try to be factual and I, I try not to get too emotional with cases and stuff. But like, I don't know. Like reading some of the stuff that I had to read for this case. And like, I cut out a lot that was just too much for me to like have to say. And like, obviously it's out there if you guys want to look it up. But like, I don't know. This is a hard case, man. Yeah, it, well, anything that involves a small child is... It's always really, really hard. Oh, yeah. And it's just, like, she suffered so much. Like, she suffered so much. Like, she put her through so much. And, like, can you imagine? Okay, so as a kid, do you imagine how scary it would be to feel drugs going through your system like that if you've never experienced anything and wasn't expecting it? Well, yeah, and it's not even just that. It's somebody that you know. Like, that was her mom's best friend, right? No, that was her... So she was friends with the mother, but it was her best friend's mom. Oh, okay. So she was there all the time playing with her daughter. Yeah, so she, you know, this is somebody that she knows, somebody that she was comfortable with. It's... Yeah, she only lived a few trailers down. Like, they, she would go over there all the time. It's just, yeah, it's just, like... Like, I guess it just shows you you never really know anyone. Her family was really comfortable. Like, this is a Sunday school teacher. They were so comfortable with letting Sandra go over to her house to play. They never thought they had to worry. And then this happens. So do you ever really know anyone? Is your kid ever really safe with anyone but you? Well, I know it's more likely when someone's missing. It's not a stranger. It's somebody right next door. You know, and I think it didn't take a really long time for them to circle in on Melissa but I think the reason why it took as long as it did was because she was a woman. You know, I told you, like, the police did a profile and they profiled it as a white man. Because statistically, when a little girl goes missing, it's white men. Well, yeah, and with the obvious signs of sexual assault. Yeah, but, like, yeah. So it's just, well, like, and you obviously, when a little girl goes missing, your head goes to the worst place and you assume se sexual assault, which further points you to a man. Because... Like, statistically, women don't do those crimes as often. And like I said, like, we don't know if Sandra is, like, we don't know if Melissa was a pedophile or she did it for attention or she did it to cover her tracks. We don't, we do not know. She never admitted to sexually assaulting Sandra. She, to this day, says it never happened. Yeah, but autopsy doesn't lie. Autopsy and DNA don't lie. Well, like we said, you can't trust anybody. You can't trust your next door neighbor, somebody that you think you know you don't know. It turns out that the most sinister and evil people in this world are right next door. Mm 